If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, and share so we can find others like yourself. BitcoinBasicsPodcast.com But apart from that, fairly uneventful. I was watching it on my own block explorer and it was a block behind. So I kind of actually missed the <laughs> uh, halving as it happened. But it was, I don't know, kept an eye on it, watched the halving and then had a cup of tea and then went back to what I was doing. So yeah. I suppose it's like any New Year's party. It's such a big build up. By the time you get there, it's anticlimactic. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like when it happens, it's like, oh, what now? Well, nothing, just carry on. <laughs> Welcome to the Bitcoin Prosperity Podcast with your host Gordon, that's me, and Ferris from CoinCompass.com, enabling you to safely buy and securely store your Bitcoins. All resources are in the show notes and description, including our full disclaimer. Visit BitcoinProsperityPodcast.com to subscribe and discover other free content. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Bitcoin Prosperity Podcast here with Ferris and Gordon. And Gordon's going to introduce a very special guest for us tonight. But before we do, uh, today is Tuesday, the 12th of May. It is 9 a.m. UTC time. The price of Bitcoin, according to Bitstamp, is 8,758. And our block high proof of recording is we are at block 630,000. And 84. Okay, so actually today was big news today, Gordon. We had the having go through today. And I'll let you talk about that and introduce our guest for today. Well, before I do that, what did you do for the having? <laughs> Uneventful for me. I've been through one of these before, a couple. Okay. I, uh, at 2 a.m., I was watching Turnbay's live stream. Um, he had about 50 guests on Zoom, including the Winklevoss, Mike Novakratz, and a few other people. So that was absolutely awesome. But I think the highlight, and I absolutely love Tone, and I hope Tone comes on our podcast, but Tone has enough trouble organizing himself, his own microphone and speaker, to see him try to organize 50 guests on Zoom, mute, unmute. It was just a total nightmare. So that was my highlight of the Harvey. Um, okay, no offense, Tone. We want you on our podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, and um, we're actually really privileged to be able to interview people from all walks of life and different aspects of Bitcoin, so um, it's, uh, it's an honor to do that. So we're going to introduce Greg Walker, and usually what we do, Greg, is we say, tell us about yourself sort of thing, but I thought I would read from your website, and then you can say whether that's correct or not. <laughs> okay. So, so Greg is a web designer, walker, guitar player, traveler, beer drinker, organizer of the Bitcoin Sheffield meetup. By the way, you have an awesome video that I'll link in the show notes, starting with Bitcoin video, getting started with Bitcoin video. Um, member of uh, Sheffield Geeks, creator of BitcoinRain.io, transaction visualizer, creator of LearnMeAtBitcoin.com, which is where I uh, learned about you, Greg. And I think that started as a poker site. How correct or incorrect am I? Uh, that's fairly, fairly good. Um, yeah, that'll do. Thank you very much. That's a very kind introduction. Well, tell us, who is Greg, who is Greg Walker besides all that? Uh, my name is Greg. I'm now 31. Um, I've been interested in Bitcoin for about four, well, five or six years now. Um, and when I first used it for the first time, I thought, wow, this is quite impressive. Like as a, as a, uh, this works, you know, why have we not had this before? So I looked into what it is. 
and um, I was really just, you know, um, very impressed by it. I thought I was amazed. So I've been sort of trying to learn how it works for the last five or six years, and I've been making a website um, with explanations of how I understand how it works to hopefully try and help other people to um, understand how it works too. But in general, I just like computers and I like making websites. I like the fact that you can create anything on your own, on your home computer and then anyone anyone in the world can see it. Um, I think that's really cool. So I've been doing that since I was like 15, 16, and I'm still doing it now, still trying to create something cool. So yeah, that's me. You're a man after my own heart, but because you've got long hair, you're either a musician or a Unix developer. Uh, yeah, I'm the latter. Well, I'm not a developer, well, not developer but I, I do run Linux. Um, so that'll be that. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so just before we get into um, some other questions, what did you do the, during the halving? Was it eventful? Um, well, well, I mean, what is the halving? Do you want to explain to our audience what it is and what it means? <clears throat> Yeah, sure. Uh, so the halving, so um, the blockchain is one big file of transactions and every 10 minutes on average, a new block of transactions will get added um, onto that file um, and it takes energy to do so. Um, but so, but the incentive for a miner to work to try and add a new um, block of transactions onto the blockchain, you get this thing called a block reward, which um, a miner can send themselves an amount of Bitcoin that did not exist before. So when Bitcoin first started, this block reward was 50 Bitcoins. Mm -hmm. And every just over 200,000 blocks, um, the reward that you can get from a block halves. So it went from 50, it went down to 25, and we were were at 12.5. And then yesterday, um, it came up to block 630,000. And so it halved again to 6.25 Bitcoins. So the rate of new Bitcoins entering the system has halved um, as expected. But it happens every four years. So I suppose there's not really a lot going on day to day. Bitcoin just runs as it does every day um, normally. But I suppose the halving is a, a point where things change. It's mostly uneventful because it's all expected. Um, but it's something to be interested in. So, But I, I didn't um, do too much. Um, had a few bets on um, with the people of Bitcoin Sheffield uh, trying to guess the exact time uh, of the halving. Um, I didn't win, so but it was worth a, it was a bit of fun. But apart from that, fairly uneventful. I was watching on my own block explorer and it was a block behind, so I kind of actually missed the <laughs> uh, halving as it happened. But it was, I don't know, kept an eye on it, watched the halving and then had a cup of tea and then went back to what I was doing. So yeah. I suppose it's like any New Year's party. It's such a big build-up. By the time you get there, it's anticlimactic. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like when it happens, it's like, oh, what now? Well, nothing. Just carry on. <laughs> that sounds like a typical British uh, response. And speaking of British, Greg, what is the... Because, I mean, I guess most podcasts are US-centric and a lot of the guests that we've interviewed uh, are from the US. Um What's the scene like in the UK from a developer and adoption point of view? What's what's happening in, in Bitcoin? Um, I wouldn't say I've got my finger on the pulse of like the, the British crypto scene. Um, but I've been to a few events. We have a few events like um, London's quite obviously the most popular for Bitcoin-based events. Uh, Manchester has a few events too. Um, I suppose there's things going on, definitely. Um, I'm probably not the best person to ask about uh, uh, 
what's hot. Um, but then again, I suppose um, Bitcoin is a very digital um, uh, project, so it doesn't really matter where you are located, like physically, you can always get involved. Um, me being in Sheffield, I wouldn't say Sheffield as much as I'm running a lovely Bitcoin meetup group. I wouldn't say it's a, a hub for Bitcoin at the moment, um, but it doesn't matter because you know everything's online and on GitHub and things like that. So, um, but I think I suppose I mean you could live anywhere. Um, the UK is a nice place to live, so um, yeah, I, I wouldn't. Yeah, I think that's all I got to say on it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so we asked this question to all our guests: What was your aha light bulb moment when you first looked, or or, or even when you first bought bought Bitcoin? What was that experience like? Um, just sending it from one wallet to another. Um, I think I I bought something, and um, as soon as I paid for it. Uh, it was like, oh, wow, like, why have we not had this sort of technology before? That just worked. That was so simple and so easy. It was like sending an email. It was like, oh, you know, we've had PayPal in the past, but you always felt like, you know, you're, going, you're asking someone to transfer the money for you or you're going through someone, you have, you're waiting for permission for something to be uh, very um, authorized. But when I made a Bitcoin payment, it was like, oh, it just in, you know, almost instant and just so easy. I was like, well, well why have we not had this before, um, you know? We have the internet, we have emails, why not something similar for, for money? So it's literally the first time using it. So that's why I always say I always recommend to people like if you're interested in Bitcoin to get a feel for why it's interesting, is just to use it for the first just to use it and then you'll see and you'll get a feel for um how efficient it is and easy to use. Yeah, so with that, Greg, was that um an easy step to take in because I was the same. I was incredibly nervous the first time I bought Bitcoin and, and it was kind of like that leap. Like once you're in very, very simple it's yep. like riding a bike when you know how to do it, it's easy. But did you find that experience? I want to buy Bitcoin now. Can you just talk us through that? The first time you went to buy Bitcoin, how simple was it? How nervous were you? What, you know, what wallets did you use? How did you choose those wallets? Um, I wouldn't say I was I was too nervous. Um, I, I think I approached it thinking, well, if I lose a little bit of money, um, I've lost it. I've, I was just more interested in just giving it a go and see what happens, see what it's all about. I thought um, taking the chance and experiencing it was worth the risk of what could have happened if I lost a bit of money, whatever. So I wasn't, I wasn't too fearful of the risk. I sort of accepted the risk of what I was doing. Um, so I bought from a website called Local Bitcoins which is quite nice. You sort of get it pairs you up with, with other people. So I didn't buy from somewhere like, you know, Coinbase. So that was sort of risky again, but I, at the time I just accepted that if I lose this, I lose this. So I think that sort of helped me just sort of not worry about it too much. Um, and it, I, I suppose because I came into it with a mindset of like no expectations, I, everything sort of exceeded my expectations every step of the way. Um, the, local bitcoins was really easy to use i found um that went through well and then it was okay now i need to withdraw this so i downloaded electrum the wallet um it's a bit confusing at first i didn't know what was going on but it was fairly simple and i just withdrew to electrum and then that was it then i, I had my own, my first bitcoins um so it was a lot easier um than i expected but then I think like I, I always think the best way to learn is just to just to go for it. Um, but if you're very f- if you're fearful of losing money, I mean, uh, 
you know, I can't promise that everything's going to be seamless on your, on your first go, but the best way to learn is to try and give it your best shot. So if someone's listening to this or you are going to recommend buying Bitcoin to a friend or a family member or whatever, what do you suggest? Um, well, I've never actually used Coinbase. Um, I've never been a fan of um, their role in sort of um, requiring ID. I think it's sort of antithetical to what Bitcoin is about. Um, they offer a service and it's reliable, um, so that's good. But I've never used it just because I don't think it's um, in the spirit of Bitcoin, I suppose. Um, so I've always used local Bitcoins. Um, Recently, they have a change, so you have to give ID. And I think that was because they've come so big now that um, it's just a requirement for them to keep operating. And so the way bit, the way you buy Bitcoin has changed. Is, I think it's, there's more definitely more ID required from different places now. That's becoming more standard, which I think is a shame. It's also, you can, I understand it, but I think it's also a shame sort of you lose a bit of privacy. Um, so I've always recommended local Bitcoins um, I think they're a good middle ground still. Um, maybe not as overbearing as Coinbase for, in terms of privacy, um, but they're not as private as other options. But the other options you can use today, like um, like BISC or HODL HODL, I think they're far too complex or too, not too complex, but I wouldn't recommend them um, for a first timer. And I, I still think the local Bitcoins is, is cool for a first timer. But if you are absolutely worried um, just go with Coinbase. Um, it's up to you and what you, what risk you're happy with taking. So your mate down the pub wants to buy twenty dollars worth of Bitcoin. They're not super technical, technically savvy. Are you still yeah. going with local Bitcoins? Uh, mm, I don't know. Uh, if not, I'd probably just say Coinbase, so I don't have to feel responsible if something goes wrong for them. Um, but if they just wanted $20, you could always just send them $20 from your own phone. That might be the fastest way to show them. Um, but for my own peace of mind, I would probably recommend the biggest options um, like Coinbase or something like that. So Craig, you're someone who you mentioned you've started building your own website at the age of 15. Um, and you've also put a lot of time into understanding Bitcoin. But someone who doesn't come from a tech background, just your layperson, um, what do you think the biggest hurdles are to them to um, basically just, yeah, just saying their own Bitcoin or even just understanding it? Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I suppose ultimately, um, eventually, people won't need to understand how Bitcoin works. Um, it's like driving a car, like I drive a car and I can use it, it's all fine, but I'm not very good at fixing it. I could probably change a headlight. Uh, that's all I need to know. But as far as the mechanics go to the engine and the gearbox and stuff, I don't know how that works, or how to fix it. So I suppose eventually that people won't need to know um, how Bitcoin works, um, apart from maybe having a general understanding. Um, I think that I suppose there's a lot of resources out there, as I was saying with Gordon earlier, that there's, there's quite a lot of good information information out there on the internet to learn how Bitcoin works, but I suppose it's quite spread apart. Um, I think over time, um, people will just get a generally better understanding of Bitcoin. Um, I don't think it's... I suppose it can be too, can be technical. Depends where you're looking. Um, 
I'm not uh, I'm not sure how to best um, answer. But I, I just I think the best thing you can do is just start using Bitcoin and just go for it, and then just learn as you go along. Um, yeah. No, that that was a curly question because it's something we've been dealing with. And Gordon's an IT background. I'm in finance economics background, and um, so for us, it's been answering that question: What is Bitcoin? How do you buy it? Has been a long, arduous journey because yeah. you need to understand the technical side of it and you need to understand the economics and finance side of it. So it's, um, mm. it is challenging, but as you said, and as you show in your video, once you show people how to send it from one phone to another, you actually see the light bulb over the head turn. Mm. It's like, Oh, right, I get it. Yeah, exactly. Well, the answer is actually doing six months worth of research, reading all kinds of libertarian material, downloading a Linux server, running a full node over Tor, and then you, with your non-custodial wallet, syncing that to your full node. That's sort of the uh, standard answer. So. Oh, yeah, that, that, is, that, is the, that is the prescribed method. <laughs> and you do it while wearing an aluminium foil hat. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a... Coinbase is one of those things, Greg. I'm, I'm not a fan of Coinbase, and I can't remember the company that they took over who was basically doing all kinds of illegal KYC and all kinds of stuff. Um, the name escapes me, but uh, not a fan of them. But then again, on the other side, if you're buying $20, $30, it's not the end of the world that you get KYC Bitcoin through Coinbase just to play around with, transfer it to your wallet, see how it works. And then when you get serious and you want to buy some serious Bitcoin, you use local Bitcoins or even HODL HODL isn't as, it's a little bit more technical, but I think people eventually would be able to work out mm. sort of um, how that works. And the benefits of buying non-KYC Bitcoin, uh, you don't worry about your privacy today, but you will worry about it in about five years. So mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I don't think it's the end of the world really. I know. I think if it's, if it's like a sort of a, an easy entry point to get your feet wet, I suppose it's, that's better than not buying anything at all. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. So someone from who's not as tech savvy as Gordon, that's what I find is um, I feel more comfortable when they've got an, an easy user interface. Um, mm. I can't appreciate the back end like you guys can. I can't appreciate the screen like you guys can. If I look at like, for example, Kraken's user interfaces, not that great. Whereas Zappo had a brilliant one. And I, I, first my, I bought my first Bitcoins from Zappo and I really liked just very simple user interface. And it was a little bit more expensive to buy from Zappo, but the fact it was so easy to use to me felt like I'm not going to make a mistake here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one thing with this show we find as well, many podcasts, we get people on, we talk about the great things about Bitcoin and that's our role to educate people about Bitcoin. From your perspective, so Bitcoin fixes many things. What can't or hasn't Bitcoin fixed? Oof. Um, hmm. Uh, well, I suppose the the biggest problem that it hasn't fixed yet um, is that it can't be used as a, a global currency um, because of how uh, little sort of bandwidth it has for how many transactions it can process um, per second. Um, so it can't be really used as a day-to-day -day payment system. Um, I suppose we have sort of Lightning being developed now. I don't know much about Lightning though, um, but Bitcoin itself um, can't be used as a payment system, um, but it would make it for a very good backbone. Um, and it definitely works for that. Uh, what hasn't it fixed? Um, 
I don't know. I don't think it was... I think of it not being necessary to fix something, but more so just provide an alternative to what we currently have. Because um, before we never had an option to not use a currency that wasn't controlled by banks or governments, um, for better or for worse. Um, and I think after the last financial crash, um, Satoshi wasn't motivated to create something that's worked outside of the um, current financial system just as an option. Um, and so I think he succeeded in doing that. So I don't know what it fixes exactly, but I think it works as an alternative to what we've currently got. And it's up to people to decide whether they want to use that um, instead. But And now we have the option, which is a good thing. Um, that's how I sort of see it, its role in money. I, that's I couldn't agree with you more. And that's a thing that um, it seems there's a lot of heated arguments about Bitcoin because some people see it as it's, it exists to remove the central banks or remove government currencies. That's not going to happen. But as an alternative, that, that's, that's exactly how I see it. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think it's like an either or. I don't think it's an all or nothing um, proposition where everyone's using Bitcoin or everyone's using banks. I think they can both coexist. Um, I think people are always going to want to um, not have to worry about looking after their own money. So obviously Bitcoin, Bitcoin is custodial, so you have to take care of your own funds, which is good. We haven't had that option before, so now you can sort of control your money as opposed to sticking under your mattress. You have something that's more practical um, with Bitcoin. Um, but I don't think everyone's going to want to do that um, moving forward. So it's nice that we can, but I think people are always going to want, going to, want to have other people look after their money for them so they don't have to. Um, so I think you'll always have banks in some form. Um, but how that looks in the future, I don't know. But it'd be very interesting moving forward to see how they sort of exist together. Well, Binance is basically the new sort of crypto bank, isn't it? Um, mm. That's certainly how they're heading. Um, one of the arguments from no coiners, or at least even people who have Bitcoin, and I've helped a couple of friends recently just buy $100 worth of Bitcoin, but it's sort of sitting on their mobile phone. And one of the arguments is, not that Bitcoin's useless, but it's like, well, what can I do with it? It's sitting in my wallet doing nothing. So um, why do you think there hasn't been more merchant adoption? And perhaps um, does that really matter that you can't do anything with it? Um, well, I do a few things with it. I, I probably don't use it as much as I probably could, but there's a few websites, like there are a lot of tech websites, like I buy domains um, like from Namecheap using Bitcoin because that's nice. Uh, I pay for hosting. Uh, for my websites with Bitcoin. I buy computer hardware um, with Bitcoin. So where I can use it and spend it, I will. Um, I also get paid um, by some companies for advertising um, in, in Bitcoin, so that's handy. So instead of having to go through, um, you know, cumbersome bank transfers, Bitcoin is very, very easy to use. So it, it, it can be used, but I suppose it depends if you're working with other people who, who use it too. I suppose it depends on your experience of how useful Bitcoin is. Um, but I suppose ultimately maybe some companies are aware that Bitcoin can be used as a payment system um, for all kinds of payments. It's probably going to be used for more wealth transfers or something like that um, in the future. And maybe fear and uncertainty and regulation might be holding them back from you know major companies from adopting it because they don't want the headache and the 
number of users up until now probably isn't worth the effort of all the risks they'll be taking to accept Bit- Bitcoin as a payment account, uh, a pair payment. Um, I don't know, maybe with time, with more people using Bitcoin, more people aware of it, things might change. Um, I think is I think it's just a time thing and awareness and that can't be rushed. Um, but there are some places that they use Bitcoin, which is nice, but maybe if there was more, it'd be uh, more apparently useful for more people. But I think it's just a time thing, see how it goes. Hopefully more people will start using it and offering it as a payment. Yeah, I totally agree. And I was, by the way, Greg, I was talking about normal people, not like us who would like buy stuff with Bitcoin. I was talking about uh, the person going down and getting a haircut or going to the bakery with Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. and like, well, I can't use it. So what's the point of it? It just sits in my mobile wallet. Yeah, it goes, the balance goes up and down. Sometimes it's $101, sometimes it's $97, yeah. but you know, I can't use it. But I think you're right. It just takes time. And I think we're super impatient. Like this is such a nascent technology that we're kind of expecting to take over the world and all this kind of stuff in, you know, the space of 12, 13 years. So um, yeah. I can definitely see more Bitcoin adoption. And I think Lightning, without saying it's the Holy Grail or anything like that, there may be some other layer two solutions that come along. That really is going to facilitate these instant transactions. And Lightning does actually do instant, like within one to two seconds transactions. So I, I definitely think that's coming. Do you want to learn how to safely buy and securely store your Bitcoins? Coincompass.com is running a free two-hour webinar on Sunday, 31st of May. To register and for more details, visit coincompass.com forward slash webinar. I guess the reason why we actually had you on our podcast, Greg, I just just uh, going through my notes, was um, coming across your website, learnmeabitcoin.com. What was your what was your impetus behind that? And um, you know, what why did you decide to do that? And what is it just for fun, or did you actually want to uh, learn something yourself, or what? Tell us about it. Yeah. Um, so before, I've always made websites since I was since I was young, since about fifteen, and in my uh, late teens and early twenties, I was really interested in online poker. Um, so I was playing that a lot because it was a way to sort of make a bit of money off the internet rather than get a job at McDonald's. So I was doing that for a while, and then over Christmas one time. I was a bit bored and I thought, oh, well, instead of playing poker all the time, I'll make a website. Um, what, what should I make a website about? Well, my interest at the time was poker. So I started to make it like a poker website, but I didn't know what to put on it. So I thought, well, I'll write poker strategy. I'll try and explain how, how to play poker and how to win money playing poker. Um, so I was doing that for a while. And I did that for about like four or five years. Um, I was able to sort of make money doing that. Um but then after four or five years, I completely lost interest in poker because um, it's just a game and you're not really creating anything of value. You're just sort of playing the game and hoping to win money. Um, so I didn't do anything for about a year. Um, I had other things I was dealing with at the time as well. Like, um, but then after about a year or two, I needed to start doing something. And I'd only recently used Bitcoin for the first time. I thought, wow, this is interesting. And I thought, well, I've got to start doing something. Um, so I thought, well, I'll make a website and I'll do exactly what I've done before. And I'll just make a website about something I'm interested in Bitcoin and try and explain how it works. Um, so I started doing that and just been going from there. Um, I think I've learned over time how little I knew uh, at the start. I thought it would be a lot more uh, easier to explain. Um, I think I've got a decent understanding of it now. Um, but I suppose it's only after, over time that you look back and think, oh, wow, I didn't really understand it that well uh, back then. Um, so, yeah, just I wanted to create something that I'm useful that I could help people with, um, keep me busy, um, write in, 
an educational website about Bitcoin because I like trying to help people and explain things. Um, so it all fits in with what I like doing. Fantastic. And I'll link the site in our show notes, Learn Me a Bitcoin, and I'll ask you about the name uh, in, in a moment. Um, but yeah, it's it's well illustrated. Don't, don't take offense to this, um, Greg. Um, it's fairly simple, like the design, but it really gets the point across, like the illustrations. And I think on Twitter, you had like a, time-lapse uh, gif of of one of your um one of your talks or something like that that went for about two minutes yeah um but it's explained so clear, clearly with diagrams and it really is beginner friendly um of course bitcoin you can't really understand it in 10 minutes but it sort of mm. gives you that sort of overall framework so yeah congratulations on that and do you still work on it yeah, still. Um, it's a bit of a slow progress. It t- sometimes I can spend like a week on one page. So um, the changes come very slowly. Um, so I'm still working on it. I have, sort of a, I have a vision of where I want it to be. I want it to be more of a sort of complete explanation. There's still a few gaps that I've not covered and a few pages I probably need to update and rewrite. Um, but I'm still working on it and I'll keep going and see what, see where I end up in a few years' time. Oh, it's awesome. And it's actually quite comprehensive. I just, the first time I looked at it, I thought, okay, it's just that homepage. And I scrolled through it and I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. But then I realized you've got guides, you've got beginner guides, you've even got a mini blockchain explorer. So yeah, well, well done with that. And um, oh, we you. definitely need uh, more of these resources and we'll definitely link it from our site so that uh, people sort of new to Bitcoin can, um, yeah, really get stuck in. So well done. Yeah, that, that's one thing. That's one thing we can really appreciate is taking the complex world of Bitcoin and just trying to explain it succinctly and simply. Yeah. What's been the hardest question or hardest aspect of Bitcoin for you to define and explain? Um, I think possibly, oh, that's a very good question again. Um, I think the first one I struggled with was, uh, where the bitcoins come from um i couldn't fully explain that for a while um in a way that sort of people would be happy with where do they uh, come from greg uh, <laughs> they just magically printed and then they appear in your wallet <laughs> that's what i thought a world of warcraft gold awesome internet funny money um that's what another one is like oh so who controls bitcoin that's a that's another rabbit hole um i suppose it's it's people asking questions that are obviously make sense, um, but don't fully realize to explain it. It's probably a whole topic, a whole two hour. It sounds like a simple question, but the answer is more complex than uh, people might think. Um, but I think maybe apart from that, um, how private keys and public keys and addresses work, because then you're going down into sort of like cryptography, um, which I don't think, which is very interesting, but also, trickier to explain um i don't know uh it's all it can, it can all be quite <laughs> i relate to where the bitcoins come from explaining bitcoin mining i recently had a conversation with someone or just chatting with someone on instagram and they were like oh explain to me how bitcoin mining works and i i gave them a link to our podcast I'm like oh can't you just mm. tell me now <laughs> no yeah. i'm not going to <laughs> mm. you, you just sit down and give a, a full speech on the whole thing to really put it across yeah, we have a website, you know, and you'd appreciate this. We have a website, we have podcasts where we spend time trying to explain to you. So, you know, I'm not going to try and explain to you over Instagram. <laughs> yeah, how long have you got? <laughs> that would be a challenge, Farris, with a series of pitches. It's a challenge I rejected. Yeah, probably a good thing. 
But uh, Faris actually did a talk at a pub uh, a while ago. And one of the things about explaining Bitcoin is you can't just dive straight into it. You can't dive straight into the blockchain. There's all mm-hmm. these fundamental building blocks. And for example, Faris has a really good talk on the history of money. And it's sort of like you, you need to sort of people sort of need to understand sort of money and value and where that comes from. Then you need to know a little bit of basics about peer-to-peer networks and all this kind of stuff. And so you're building all these building blocks and it, and it seems like you're doing all this work and then you're like, okay, now I'll tell you about Bitcoin. You can't sort of dive straight into it, which, which I find is great, but it's also frustrating that you can't explain it within 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. I think everyone's searching for that 30 second explanation that everyone understands, but I don't think it, it exists. I think it just gets built up over time. Just start well, somewhere. It's equivalent explaining the internet in your early 90s. Like you just YouTube when Bill Gates was on David Letterman. And just that, that's a fascinating interview to watch. And Letterman goes, tell me about this internet thing. What is it? And that's- doesn't get it and mocks him. So and that's where we are. And um, you guys were talking before about like some of the frustrations of Bitcoin. And one of the best analogies I heard was um, people are treating Bitcoin now as if you were expecting to watch Netflix on your iPhone in Nigeria 20 years ago. And technology has progressed that far that people are expecting Bitcoin to progress where technology are, not understanding some completely new technology. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's got some way to go. Definitely. Well, uh, how about we give you a bit of Q&A, Greg, if you don't mind. We've actually doing this series, YouTube series, which um, Faris and I were going to do a podcast every single day answering a short question. And I think our podcast ended up being 25, 30 minutes long. We're, we're planning on five to 10 minutes per question. I think we're up to day 27. So we're actually day 27. It's taken us about two months to get there. But what we thought, we've got you here anyway. Um, how about we, instead of us answering them, get a good get a different perspective and you answer a couple of questions if you're up for it. Oh, I'll give it a go. All right. Thank you. One of the things that makes Bitcoin really interesting to me is its ability to decentralize uh, currency. A lot of problems have come with government monopolies over currency um, and that the ability of the technology to the peer to peer technology to decentralize that authority is good in a lot of ways, but it also makes it a threat to those power structures. And I'm curious what the ramifications are of that. Like we've seen countries uh, make moves to try to uh, keep people from using uh, Bitcoin. I wonder how you see that playing out. Can, can countries and governments, power structures, uh, can they keep people from using Bitcoin? Can they pass laws against it? Uh, can they um, uh, can they wage like an economic war on it and sort of drive down the currency? What are the things that can be done to uh, fight against uh, Bitcoin? And uh, do you see those as uh, being problematic to investment in the currency? So like threats to Bitcoin, so what could sort of kill it? Um, I suppose the two... Um, major parts of security that uh, Bitcoin depends upon is uh, public key cryptography and the SHA-256 hash function. So that's obviously a bit technical to get started with. But first of all, um, the hash function um, 
a hash function is just like a little mini computer program that you put some data in and it scrambles it and it spits out a, a small, uh, almost randomized um, fingerprint for that data. Um, but the way the hash function works, you can't control um, what data comes out of it, um, you know, the fingerprint. And every time you put a different piece of data in, it'll scramble it and produce a new, unique uh, piece of data. So that is used um, when mining blocks. So if you want to uh, add a new block of transactions to the blockchain, you sort of put the block of data into the hash function. And hopefully um, you'll get a fingerprint that it starts with a certain number of zeros. Um, so this then creates like a network-wide competition where everyone's hashing the, these blocks as fast as they can to try and produce new blocks that start with a set number of zeros. And that's how the blockchain is built. Um, <clears throat> so this whole system um, depends on nobody being able to control what comes out of the hash function, sort of being able to analyze it and then create blocks in a certain way where they can intentionally, without having to work hard, um, produce valid blocks to add onto the blockchain. Um, so if people were able to do that, then they could rewrite parts of the blockchain or um, yeah, just re rewrite the blockchain. So it, and it would lose its sort of network-wide competition then because someone would have an unfair advantage. So the um, strength or the security of the blockchain depends on this hash function, function being not sort of gamed. Um, but I don't think any hash function has been broken in that way before. It's called like a pre-image attack, um, but I, that seems unlikely. So as far as like keeping the integrity of blockchain, um, that's one, uh, the hash function not being able to be broken. Um, secondly, um, I suppose the other biggest threat, these aren't really threats because they're not, I, I don't see them on the horizon, but I suppose from a technical perspective, what could hurt Bitcoin or damage Bitcoin? Um, the second one would be um, obviously your private keys and addresses. So um, if anyone could, when you create your own address, um, you start with a private key, which is a very large random number. And then you put that through like a mathematical function to produce a, a new number connected to it. And that's called your public key. So when you receive Bitcoins, you'll give this public key, um, this called an address um, to other people. And then they'll put this public key uh, in a lock on a set amount of Bitcoins. Um, and so when you come to spend them, you'll use your private key um, to create another number called a signature, which corresponds to that public key. Um, and so the only person who can cre create valid signatures is the person who has the original private key that the public key was created from. Um, so if anyone could look at your public key, which is public because it's on the blockchain, and then work backwards through that mathematical function to work out what your private key was, um, then they could steal your Bitcoins and uh, that would obviously undermine how people owned Bitcoins. So that would be the second thing. So just before you go on, do you stay awake at night um, scared of uh, quantum computing? Um, I don't know much about it or how it would have a much of an effect on Bitcoin. Um, I, as much as I know, I've, I've listened to other podcasts with people talking about it from, by smart people and they don't seem too worried. So if they're not worried, I'm not going to worry about it too much at the moment either. But I don't know enough about it to be able to not be worried <laughs> uh, or tell other people not to be worried. But it doesn't seem like it's something uh, on the horizon at the moment. 
Yep. Sorry, you. I interrupted you. Oh, that's no, fine. Um, so yeah, but then um, so yeah, um, not being able to work back from like a so when you give somebody a public key, um, there's a uh, mathematical laws there that prevents people from working backwards to get your private key. Um, it's quite interesting, really, how it's like this is cryptography, how private keys and public keys work. Um, but these have been around. Um, the one Bitcoin uses the system you it uses has been around since about the nineties, I believe. Um, and it's not been broken. So it depends on that, but it seems very solid. And so unless there's some sort of mathematical breakthrough through, um, that that's going to be fine. Um, but even then, I suppose there are other sort of public key systems that could be used interchangeably in Bitcoin. Um, but again, these are just, I suppose these are two major, um, building blocks that Bitcoin uses for like security and, for it to run um uh security but i don't see them being broken anytime soon so but it's just two things i thought of that i suppose that are fundamental to bitcoin that you wouldn't want to see being broken how likely is a 51 percent attack oh that's more i think that's far more likely than um either those two things i just said from happening um i suppose that's more of like a, a social or political sort of um threat um, I think it's about two or three years ago. There was a, I was, I was, I was very concerned that because there was a, a mining pool that came very close to over fifty percent. Um, uh, it would take a lot of energy and money and resources to be able to perform a fifty-one percent attack. Um, and even if you did, you, I don't think it'd be worthwhile for anyone to to actually do it. Um, but maybe if like, say like some sort of, you know, government wanted to undermine the integrity of Bitcoin, I suppose they could, they could try it, but I think people would see it come in and there, there are workarounds. So even if it does happen, you could just sort of go back to a certain point in the blockchain, uh, move to a different, uh, hash algorithm. There are, there are ways around it, but, um, it wouldn't be good for Bitcoin. It would definitely, uh, temporarily lose sort of trust in it um but i think that's a 51 percent attack is definitely more likely than the other two things i mentioned but we'll have to wait and see if anything like that happens one of the um the things that i actually just learned yesterday i never ever considered this and and i i think all these attacks are pretty 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 unlikely um, was actually a supply chain attack because the ASIC manufacturers basically split in between uh, Bitmain and um, Samsung, I think, are the other one who make the chips for the for the ASICs. So there are many different ASICs manufacturers, but there are only really two chips. What if um, someone actually, you know, uh, supplanted one of those chips? That could be actually mm. a pretty major uh, threat to Bitcoin, I think. But um, again, with, with all this stuff, and Faris and I have discussed this before, you know, um, people are looking at the Bitcoin blockchain all the time. So even if something like this happened, you know, within one block, two blocks, um, some developers would be, uh, be able to have a fix. Even if it was something extreme like use, uh, move to say another um, uh, proof of work algorithm temporarily or, or some of like that. So I'm, uh, I'm not worried about any of these things. Sorry, Gortz, can you guys explain to a non-techie the attack on the physical chips that you just mentioned? Um, so the uh, Bitcoin miners, and I, I don't really want to go too far into it, but the Bitcoin miners, these are these specialized computers. So they're not computers that you run Windows 10 on. They're basically these shelf 
computers that have a CPU, they have fans, and they do one thing and they do one thing only. You can't play Solitaire, you can't play Call of Duty on them. There's no mouse or keyboard. They just um, solve this mathematical puzzle that uh, Greg was talking about to, um, to mine Bitcoin. But there may be many manufacturers, but those manufacturers are really just putting a case and a sticker over it if there are only two actual manufacturers of the CPU chips. So I believe, and don't quote me on this, Bitmain and Samsung are the only two manufacturers of these ASIC uh, chips. And so if there was one of them to go rogue or there was some uh, malware in it or something, I have no idea, in one of them, then yeah, potentially overnight you could have you know, more than 50% of the ASICs, the um, Bitcoin miners, running this malicious uh, uh, mining or however they wanted to do it. Okay, but that's pretty far-fetched because it would just be a certain batch of the chips, wouldn't it? Well, yes and no. Think of uh, the computer chips nowadays. Like everyone in their laptop, if you're running Windows, you've probably got an Intel chip. So there's really only a couple of manufacturers. There's Apple. Actually, Apple uses Intel as well. And there's AMD. So in the computing world, there's really only two manufacturers. Intel has about 95 and 90% market share. But if the same thing happened... Yes, it's far-fetched. I'm just, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate. Um, if someone did actually put some code into one of those chips, you could potentially have more than 51% of the miners mining um, something malicious or try and take over the Bitcoin network. But those chips uh, would only affect new supply. They, they wouldn't affect the existing supply, the miners that are already running, wouldn't they? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So... Um, uh, depending on depending on when it was found, you, you might not find it day one, but yeah, depending on when it's found, it may be limited to that, as you said, that particular batch. Okay. So under that scenario, you'd need 51% of the hardware miners running the contaminated chips, which is very unlikely considering how many miners are already out there and how many nodes are out there. Extremely unlikely. I'm just trying to put some put some threats out there. Um, then again, if they weren't discovered for for a few generations of the chips, so for example, if there were miners produced today and they weren't discovered for another three four months time, that then that could be a serious problem because these computer chips have millions of lines of code in them. So, Greg, we're being incredibly rude here. You're our special guest, and we're kind of <laughs> no, I'm enjoying it. Okay, carry on, carry on. Um, yeah, I, I suppose um, that's one of the um, least least elegant parts of Bitcoin is the fact that um, not everyone can mine anymore. I think if there's going to be a success to Bitcoin, it'd be something where um, mining wasn't centralized, that everyone could mine and have an opportunity to support the network and uh, earn Bitcoin through mining. Um, so yeah, that's what's a shame. Um, I think it was expected um, when Satoshi originally designed Bitcoin that... Um, might, there would be some sort of level of mining centralization. Um, but the fact that you have to buy these specialized computers to be able to mine these days, I think is a bit of a shame. Um, but yeah, and obviously because of that, because you have, there's only sort of certain computers you can use to be able to mine, then that does sort of pose risks. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's definitely a, um, uh, I wouldn't say a weak, well, a weaker point um, of, of Bitcoin having to, depend on certain suppliers for these manufacturers so if, if there's more people manufacturing these chips that would be um, better but if it's true that there's only sort of you know two that are making it then that that is not um uh a perfect situation 
but it doesn't do, but you know, who knows? So do you think mining is going to become more or less decentralized, especially now that we've just had a block having, um, uh, um, or having, yeah. Um, Mm, I, I think it could go either way. I, 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 um, I probably don't. If I'm just guessing. Uh, I think it could go either way. I think either um, less people will be interested in mining. It'd be too expensive, too much hard work. Um, I think it's going to become more and more efficient, and so they're going to be sort of specialized operations. And the average hobby hobbyist isn't going to want to set up their own mining operation because um, it won't be efficient enough. Um, might be sort of geographically like it is now sort of centralized in some areas where there's cheap electricity um i think as long as it's mining pools um they, i think they're a very good thing for bitcoin um because that means that anyone can sort of contribute uh, they can get their own little mining operation to i think they're very good for bitcoin and they should continue um i think they are very much in the spirit of bitcoin um but at the end of the day um the more mining power there is the more secure the blockchain is i think that's the ultimate um yeah benefit of it but yeah i don't know yeah this uh faris and i've talked quite a lot about the game theory and that's what it fascinates me about bitcoin there's obviously the technology that we're talking about but there's just this amazing yeah bitcoin is complex but there's this, this amazing simplicity to some of these uh game theory um components that are built built in and no matter what you come up, no matter what threat you come up with, it's always more efficient and cheaper and actually more valuable for you to do the right thing. So yeah. when you talk about 51% attacks and all these threats to Bitcoin, it's like you could do that, but you could just mine Bitcoin and actually make yeah. more money. So yeah. you know, yeah. um, the incentives aren't really there. Hmm. So let's do one more question. Then this is right up your alley, uh, Greg. We had a question. Okay, I'll play the question now. Hey guys, how you going? Love the podcast. I was just wondering on a practical sense how I can go about um, trading my Bitcoin with somebody else. If I have one and I want to uh, transfer it to somebody else, how could I uh, practically go about doing that? Thanks, guys. Perhaps you could go through sort of a, an overview of what a Bitcoin wallet is, sort of how they work, and perhaps the different types of Bitcoin wallets. Yeah, sure. Um, so a wallet, um, ultimately, when you think of a wallet, you probably, your initial thought is to think that the wallet contains Bitcoins inside it. Um, but actually, a wallet doesn't actually hold Bitcoins. What a wallet is, it's a sort of like a key management um, program. So to send and receive Bitcoins, you need to generate these things called keys, like a private key and a public key. Uh, that public key gets converted to an address for make it easier to pass around. But ultimately, you just have a private key and a public key. Um, so when you receive Bitcoins, you'll give someone your public key. And then when you want to come to spend those Bitcoins, you use the, your private key to unlock those Bitcoins, send them on to other people. So all what it does is it uh, just manages your your um, uh, your private keys and public keys for you um, to allow you to send and receive Bitcoins. Um, so that's the fundamental role of a wallet and all the bitcoins actually exist you know on the on the blockchain so people who are running the bitcoin program you know the bitcoin core program is like the, with a network of computers um, that's almost separate to the wallet the wallet sort of interacts with the network um, but it doesn't run 
Bitcoin. It doesn't have to. It sort of just sends messages between the network and the wallet to be able to, you know, uh, move Bitcoins around on the blockchain. Um, so a wallet really is just, um, uh, it holds onto your, your, your passwords and account numbers, if you will, um, security for you. So that's what a wallet does. So it's like a password manager for your Bitcoin private keys. Yes, exactly. That's that. I should have said that. That should have saved me a minute to try to explain. <laughs> no, I just thought of that off the top of my head. I was thinking of LastPass. Um, so there are different kinds of wallets, Greg. How about you go through the different types? And uh, your friend just bought ten thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, and uh, he's going to leave it on Coinbase. Is that a is that a good idea? Um, yes and no. Uh, that's probably a bit of a controversial. Um, I would say, obviously, if you if you get into Bitcoin, you should be doing it for the for the spirit of Bitcoin of being able to control your own money. So, if you're buying Bitcoin, um, you want to have it and own it yourself. You know, um, so I suppose the question is with Coinbase. A Coinbase is like a website that holds Bitcoin for you. So when you're buying Bitcoin um, on Coinbase, um, it's like having a certificate saying that you own some gold, but you don't actually have the gold physically in your possession. Um, so if Coinbase was to uh, go down or run away or disappear for whatever reason, then so would your Bitcoins because you never actually owned them in the first place. Um, so what's recommended if you really want to own the Bitcoins yourself is to withdraw them to your own wallet. So what the biggest phrase in Bitcoin um, is not your keys, not your coins. So if you withdraw the Bitcoins to your wallet, all that's really happening is um, Coinbase is making a transaction where they move the Bitcoins that they own um, to a new lockbox, if you will, with a lock on it. And inside that lock is your public key. Um, so you own the um, have the sole ability to be able to move those bitcoins on, and they belong to you. Um, your sole possession of them. Um, obviously, that brings its own risks. So, if you're worried about losing, if you don't trust your own security, or you um, don't want to be able to handling that amount of money um, digitally on your own computer with your own keys, um, I think it's quite simple. Really, surprisingly simple to do so. Um, but if you're just in it from a purely investment perspective which I don't really care for. I think there's more to it than Bitcoin than that. Um, but obviously investments, obviously the, one of the biggest attractions for some people, um, then maybe leaving it in Coinbase. Um, if you just only cared for just to buy it and hold it and then sell it for a profit later on, um, that might be a better option for you. But if you really want to get into Bitcoin for what it, you know, the spirit of Bitcoin, I would say withdraw it to a wallet. Um, and so a wallet, you can just download load one on your phone, um, on your computer, and all it will do, it will give you, it'll generate private keys and public keys that you can use to be able to um, receive Bitcoins. So what you do, you would generate a public key for you or an address. You would enter that into the Coinbase website, click submit, and then hopefully if they're honest, they will uh, create a transaction for you and lock those Bitcoins to something that is a key that you control and only you control. Um, so ultimately, if you were to lose those keys or you didn't back it up correctly, then you would also lose the uh, Bitcoins. So it's a double-edged sword, but it gives you complete control of your money, which is what Bitcoin is about. Yeah, I mean, I, I apologize for leading you down the down the uh, garden path there because, yeah, that's basically what our business is all about, how to safely buy Bitcoins, but then how to securely store them. Yep. So um, hardware wallet versus paper wallet or metal wallet. 
Yeah, so um, I suppose the different... Um, well, first of all, your, your typical wallet on computer, that's often referred to as a hot wallet because um, it's connected to the internet. So if some sort of malware or viruses were to get into your computer and would log in your keys, um, there's a chance that your private keys could be exposed and your Bitcoin stolen. Um, so ultimately, um, the more ideal situation, um, what how things used to work in the past was you would create a or you buy a second computer, like a cheap laptop, install a completely new operating system on it, um, put a new wallet on it and never connect it to the internet, um, and then use that to generate you know, your public keys and addresses. Um, so then it's never been connected to the internet, so it's at no risk of being um, you know, hacked into. Um, and then you would take those addresses and then you would manually put those into your other computer for day-to-day spending and receiving. But if you wanted to spend them, you'd have to go back to your other computer because you're going back and forth between a computer that's connected to the internet and one that's not. Um, so that worked and that was very secure. But now we have these things called hardware wallets and a hardware wallet is just a more convenient uh, way of doing what I just said. So it's like an offline computer that's never connected to the internet and it just generates your uh, private keys and public keys for you and you can connect it directly to your computer, but it has no internet connection. So it's far more secure. So if you have any amount of Bitcoin um, on your uh, internet-connected computer that you're worried about, um, I would highly recommend getting a hardware wallet. Um, it's for peace of mind. Um, so yeah, like Trezor, I'm quite a fan of. There's also one called Ledger. Uh, Cold Card is pretty cool, but that's a bit more uh, technical. But I think Trezor is the best place to start. Um, in terms of uh, paper and metal wallets, um, a paper a metal is more of a backup as opposed to a wallet so when you first use a uh, use a wallet for the first time set one up it'll provide you with a seed and this seed is just like a it's a set of 24 12 24 words but ultimately it just represents a, a random number that no one else has seen or has used before um, and that is used then to generate every single um, private key and public key in your wallet so it's like the master uh, key if you will for all your keys so um, by writing that down, paper, writing that on paper or engraving it in metal, then that's a great way to back up your seed because you want to keep it offline. Um, so if you ever to lose your wallet, um, as long as, as long as you've got this um, paper or metal with a seed on it written down, then you can always um, regenerate every single um, address that you've ever used. So, which is quite amazing, the fact that you can just write some words on a piece of paper and it could hold millions of dollars um, on it. But obviously, you still need to use a wallet for practical uses, like a hardware wallet or a hot wallet, to be able to send and receive bitcoins. But the paper or metal is there just as a backup um, in case any of those go down. You have to regenerate all your keys. Uh, we could go on forever. We've already been going for an hour, so we're conscious of your time. And I wanted to ask you some questions about multi-sig and all kinds of stuff. But uh, maybe for uh, for another day and another podcast, uh, Greg. Is there anything that we haven't covered or we haven't asked you that you want to plug or anything you want to cover or say? Uh, no, just um, thank you for having me. This has been really, really, really good. Um, it's, it's good to talk about Bitcoin. It's good to be able to try and help. And I think what you're doing is wonderful. And I think you should definitely continue. I think um, I think Bitcoin can only really move forward with more education and 
helping people to understand how it works. So I think keep doing that. And I think Bitcoin has a much brighter future. Oh, thank you, Greg. Same goes to you. Um, yeah, we know it's hard just putting yourself out there, staying in front of a group and talking about this stuff. It uh, can be quite intimidating. So, um, yeah, really appreciate your work. And, um, yeah, it's... Uh, no, thank you. Hopefully, it was easy at some to... point, we can all meet in person somewhere. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know where the middle point is between uh, us three, but uh, I'm sure it's somewhere. North Korea. <laughs> oh, yeah, that'll do. Yeah, we'll see you there. We could check out if he's alive or dead. <laughs> so, uh, proof of that, yeah, <laughs> well, proof of life or uh, proof of death, perhaps. Thanks again, Greg. Uh, I will list all your resources in the show notes and description of this podcast if you listen to an audio or uh, YouTube. But do you want to tell everyone sort of the best places to find out more about you and, and the projects that you're doing? Yeah. So, the main work, work, uh, website I'm working on at the moment is uh, called Learn Me a Bitcoin. Um, just a website with uh, simple explanations of how Bitcoin works. I've been working on that for a while, so that's my main sort of thing I'm working on. Um, apart from that, I do use Twitter. Um, you can find it from the website. But if you go to Learn Me a Bitcoin, Learn Me a Bitcoin, um, it's got my GitHub and Twitter on there somewhere. So um, just go there and uh, if you're interested. And uh, sorry, one last question. How the hell did you come up with that name? <laughs> I just thought it'd be funny. Uh, just, uh, <laughs> My, some of my friends in school always used to say, like, it's a joke, like, if you did something stupid, like, oh, that'll learn you. Uh, and I just thought it was really funny. Uh, and then I thought I was making a website. I thought I'd make a website to explain how Bitcoin works. And I thought it would be funny to um, call an educational website, uh, use, like, a, a, a terrible <laughs> grammar English to call it Lumia Bitcoin. I just thought it was hilarious. Um, I, I think I still do. So uh, I'm going to stick with it. Um, yeah. But thank it's you for asking. <laughs> thank you. I'm glad you like it as well. Cause I <laughs> thank you. No, it's great. We'll definitely direct people to there uh, in the future. Well, once again, Greg, thanks very much. And uh, who knows, uh, if you will put up with us, uh, maybe we'll do a version two or podcast two further down the line. Oh, I'd love and, to. I'd um, be more than happy to, yeah. Oh, thank, oh, thank you. you. Yeah. And, um, yeah, keep on going with your work in the Sheffield Bitcoin Meetup and with friends and family. And, um, yeah, learn me Bitcoin, everyone. Get on there. It, the animations and explanations are absolutely fantastic for beginners. So um, if you're the Bitcoin guy or girl in your circle of friends or you're beginning yourself, head there, as well as coincompass.com, of course, as well. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Greg. Have a, uh, a great day or afternoon or well, <laughs> what time it is over there in uh, sunny Sheffield. And um, yeah, we'll <laughs> catch you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Cheers, Greg. Cheers. Thanks for watching or listening. Please visit coincompass.com slash free to register to our socials and discover other free content. Subscribing, liking, and following helps this content remain ad-free. Until next time.